everybody doing? Man, so great. It's so funny. I was talking to Cody this morning. He's like, I should have brought my blanket, you know, and come up on stage like this before I read that passage. You know, it's one of the most popular, you know, passages around Christmas time. Uh, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's made more popular by the peanuts than the Bible itself. But, um, you know, today is in our Advent, Advent uh, progression, we're talking about peace. And as you wind down into the place that we ended up in verse 14, it says, glory to God in the highest and peace to those on whom his favor rests. And for many years, we've talked about this idea of transcendent peace, like this idea that in many translations, if you look at in the King James, and I love the King James and it's very accurate, except in this, this is the one instance I actually find where it's not necessarily not accurate. It just will lead you to believe that there will be peace on earth. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men is the way that you would read it there. And, and the reality is, is all of us could look around and go, well, that's kind of a cruel joke because, you know, right now we're probably in one of the most non-peaceful, polarized times in our own country that we've been in in 30 years, if not since the Civil War. And there's certainly not peace across the globe. We certainly don't live in peace. We certainly see that, yes, the, the, because of what Jesus has done he has made a way and the penalty of sin has been removed since past, present, future, annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. But the power of sin still exists and there's still people that are not at peace. And not only outside the walls of church communities, but also inside the walls of church communities. I know that's a shocker for y'all, but it is true. And today, um, as, as much as I really believe in this idea of transcendent peace and this idea that we as Christians can shine a big, bright, beautiful light on who Jesus is by believing that we've got something like this peace that surpasses all understanding where people could look at you and go, how in the world and the situation and the circumstance that they're in could they have peace? Because the type of peace that Jesus brings, the type of peace that was born on planet earth and walked in flesh is the one that made it possible for it to rest on those on whom his favor rests, to, to lean towards us that follow Jesus. But what would it be like, and what would it be, what would, what, what would Jesus' plan be for us to not just have internal peace, but for that peace to go beyond you and me and out to the rest of the world, that it might be possible that we would be plan A to bring peace to the world, that not only would we have internal peace in our circumstances, but the problem with external peace might begin to show itself amongst the Christian community, and not only in the Christian community, but would spill out over into the external places in our world and have such an impact as peace bringers and peace givers that people would have to begin to ask the question, how do you have this hope? How do you have this peace? As we live in the dawn, like we talked about last week, the not yet realized we see the glimmer of light, but Jesus being the radiant sun and not needing the sun anymore has not come. We haven't seen him fully face to face. We see dimly on this side of heaven, but we can live in the hope of the dawn knowing that we have a beautiful future. What would it be like and how do we extend peace to the rest of the world? And how do we extend peace beyond the normal expected boundaries, like the, the places that would be unexpected for us to extend peace be unified. It's a, it's a more difficult word in our, in our culture. What would that look like? You know, I was thinking about a story about a little girl. She grew up in a, 
in a neighborhood, not a, not a super nice neighborhood, that, you know, like these little 900 to 1,000 to, uh, square foot, you know, concrete block homes, not the best neighborhood in the world. She had three sisters, and uh, she was about four years old, and she and her sisters, of course, a house with four girls would have, you know, tons of baby dolls and, and things to play with in their house. But in that type of neighborhood, you didn't really extend beyond the boundaries of your yard. And if you had three other sisters, you really just had your own built-in playmates. They looked like you, talked like you, hung out with you, and you could share all of your toys and hang out the way that you hung out. But, but in that neighborhood was... Were, were other families, were other people that weren't like them, that didn't, didn't have the same things that they had, didn't, didn't grow up the way that they were growing up. And there was, it, was, it wasn't the nicest neighborhood. There was crime in that neighborhood. There was things that weren't amazing. And, and a couple of doors down, there was a family called the Ledbetters. Now, the Ledbetters were a different kind of family, and they had daughters in the house and some boys in the house as well. And the Ledbetters, I'll just tell you, were a little bit scary. Now, um, this one little girl, just for whatever reason, because of something that was going on in her heart, thought, I'm going to go over to the Ledbetter's house and I'm going to play. Now, when she went over there, she realized they had nothing to play with. They had no dolls. They had no, I mean, they might have had some things, but nothing in comparison to the things that she had in her house. Oh, keep in mind, she's four years old. So she goes back to her house and collects all of her dolls and puts them in a wagon or one of those plastic golf or plastic uh, grocery carts, you know, full of dolls, and begins to think about this in a neighborhood, you know, that is not, I mean, thinking about going to downtown Jacksonville, Lackawanna, and a four-year-old just kind of out strolling by herself, just cruising with her little golf cart over there with a, with a basket full of dolls, and she brings it over to the Ledbetter's house, and they play, and they have a good time, and then when she gets ready to leave, she leaves the dolls at the Ledbetter's house. And the Ledbetter's were like, hey, can we still hang out with your dolls and play with your dolls? And being the unbelievably generous little four-year-old that she was, she left them there. Now, that is bringing hope and bringing something across an unexpected boundary. And I just wanted to say this because, and my wife would hate this, but that little girl was my wife, Beth Harmon. And her sisters. Now, the only problem with that story is in that bucket of dolls were not only her dolls, but also her older sister's Carrie Baby. And Suzanne loved Carrie Baby. I mean, really loved Carrie Baby. So that presented a problem. And there's some other details to that story that you probably uh, would be hilarious and great for another sermon, but the Ledbetters held on to those dolls for quite some time. Um, but that has been a trend in, in, in my household uh, for quite some time. And you might think, it's great. And we use the term in our family, you bettered that, which means you gave it away. Um, and I'll just say this, not everybody carries the same sentiment. Of course, Suzanne, who lost her carry baby in the situation, feels kind of the way that I feel. Because when I come home, sometimes I just walk in the house and I look at a wall and I'm like, where did that, where, the, there was a, picture there. Where did the picture go? She's like, I gave it to Anne. I'm like, why'd you give it to Anne? Now there's a blank spot on the wall, which I'm a little more OCD and blank spots on walls don't work. Plus it was my picture. Well, it's our picture. You know what I'm saying? Right? I mean, let's be honest, right? But I bought it with my money. Um, 
But when you're somebody that's generous and you have the tendency to, to carry things across the unexpected boundaries to other people and do things that are unexpected, um, you often think everybody thinks the way that you do and that they're just as generous as you are. I mean, so I often would open a drawer and go, where's that shirt? You know, remember that thing that I, I, I wear all the time? She's like, I gave it to Eric. I'm like, she's like, you know, I was like, it made me look skinny. She's like, not anymore, really. And now I've got to look at Eric walking around all studly in my shirt. But external peace you know, the, the hope is, is that, that we would bring, that we would have this heart. And I only told that story because tomorrow's my wife's birthday and I wanted to say something sweet about you because you are the most generous person that I know. Um, happy birthday. But we've got this thing that we call external peace. This, this thing that, that I think by the grace that's been given to us that we could extend. Wouldn't it be amazing that we could extend hope, we could extend peace now in this week of Advent across the expected boundaries. Because as human beings, that's not what we do naturally when it comes to peace. For us, because we live in a tumultuous world, because we live in an unpeaceful world, we begin to create peace for ourselves. We create these boundary lines that we don't even know that we're creating, and we stay in these kind of homogenous groups where we feel protected where people look like us, they talk like us, they agree with us. These are the people that we're going to talk to on the phone, especially in the last couple of years. This is the, this is the deal. We end up in, in places with our entire families, sometimes not because we're trying to, but subconsciously we just end up in those places where these are the people that we're going to be around. And it's natural for us as human beings. We gravitate towards people for benign reasons that, like, I gravitate towards other people that do the things that I have affinity for, like surfing or, you know, the different, different re recreational activities. But we also, as human beings, create a safety net for ourselves. We begin to self-preserve and, and find ourselves in these places where we do have boundary lines of what feels safe. These homogenous groups where everybody believes like we believe, where everybody has the same ideology that we have, where everybody has the same thoughts that we have. And it's not that we don't gather as Christians around a biblical worldview and ideology. That's what we're doing in this room. But hopefully there's diversity in this room in the way that we think, in the way that we process life, in the jobs that we have. It's the diversity of the body that's talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But we're also called to blow up these expected boundary lines, these walls that we create, and move outside the world that we, we are in. I mean, God's plan for peace for when the world has been disrupted, when the, the hostility of what we've seen happen on planet Earth takes place, God had a plan. But as sinful human beings and as broken human beings that sometimes forget that we have a Savior, we have to be told. We need to stretch the boundary. We need to think about others more than ourselves. And there's a reason in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul's writing it. Not because everybody was doing it. When he's telling everybody, hey, you, you should regard other people greater than yourself. Their, their interests should be above yours. You should humble yourselves and give away your life. Why is he saying those things? Because we don't do them naturally. It's not something that we do just straight out of the box. And Jesus came, God's, God's solution to peace was not a set of rules. It was a savior. His solution to peace was not, you know, this, this idea of bringing you some sort of 
of law. It was bringing in the Prince of Peace himself. It was coming down and breaking into humanity. You talk about breaking the borderlines, coming from heaven to earth. I mean, I love that we sang that today. You know, we, we talk specifically about heaven, but in the context of Jesus leaving the expected border and boundary and breaking that boundary line and coming across enemy lines because we were the enemies of God. God was holy. We were broken. We were the rebels that were walking away. While we were walking away, Christ died for us. But the, but the interesting thing about that is, for you and for me, is the story doesn't end there. I mean, God is not just bringing peace to you. He wants to bring peace through you. He wants to bring peace through you. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and you read it, it's one of my favorite passages, that we have received this ministry of reconciliation. I mean, reconciliation is war and peace language, isn't it? To be reconciled, to come back together, to have something that was, was previously separated, meaning we were separated from God and we have come back together with God. But then we're also to carry that ministry of reconciliation to the world. It says that we carry this ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled. Now we have this ministry of reconciliation buried in our hearts and we, that we would be ambassadors that would carry this gospel message, this Jesus message, this peacemaking message to the rest of the world. Why? Because he who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf so that we might have the righteousness of God in him. In Ephesians 2, it says it this way, that he broke down, in his blood, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility, not just between us and God, but between two groups that were racially and ideologically opposed to one another, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so that dividing wall is gone. You are now unified by the blood of Christ. That is a, an expected boundary that is broken. And sometimes subconsciously, we don't even see those boundary lines. But the Apostle Paul is always pushing in the epistles, saying, when it, when it all possible, be at peace, not just with the people that are like you. Be at peace, it says, with all people. Go back and read Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15 some of the most challenging passages in Scripture to read through, especially in the, the place that we are in the time we're in on planet Earth. When it, when it all possible, be at peace with all people. Meaning, what is it that we can surrender? What is it that we can sacrifice? What rightness or line that we've created? Is it possible morally for us to just say, I can meet you here. I can unify with you in this place. Such a challenging call for, for you and me as we live on planet Earth. You know, I want to turn quickly to a passage in Matthew chapter 5, if you've got your Bible. How is it that we would bring peace? And is this something that God's calling us to do? Like, He's brought peace to, to us. Circumstantial peace? No. Transcendent peace, despite circumstances? Yes. But if he's bringing peace to you, but also wants to bring peace through you, is that a true statement? Well, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has come to planet Earth and he's shaking some things up because the way that they had previously heard things 
was different than what Jesus was going to say. In verse 43, he says this. He says, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is crazy talk, right? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Do you see the, the, the boundary lines there? Like we've got the boundary line, of course. God's going to bless this particular group of people. But Jesus is shocking the world in this moment saying, hey, do you realize that this grace, this common grace, is falling on the righteous and unrighteous alike? That He's not picking any favorites based on your behavior? He goes on, he says, if you love those who, you, who love you, what reward will you get? I mean, he's getting to the heart of things. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if we did a study on how people viewed tax collectors in that culture, I mean, these are the most hated people in the Jewish culture at the time. He says, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. He's saying no. Peacemakers extend love beyond and across expected boundaries. For us, we love friends and family, right? And we, we tolerate acquaintance, acquaintances. But for our enemies, we, we tend to move into that position. None of us like to use the word hate, especially in the culture that we live in. I mean, but deep down, we have rivals. Every single human being in this room, there's people that we dislike, I mean, I can think of some right now that I don't like a whole lot. I mean, it doesn't take long for me to think about the boundary line of the people that are acquaintances, the people that I love and the friends that I have around and people that I feel like have wronged me, people that I feel like just frustrate me. I mean, I, it's one of the reasons, I mean, I, I might sound like I'm, you know, super holy because I, I stay off Facebook and, and Instagram quite a bit. I mean, I look at it, but I just limit the amount of time. But it's mainly because of my weakness because it drives, hate begins to boil up in my soul when I begin to read things. I'm like, are you kidding me? Did you really post that? I mean, is that really, I mean, you go to Ocean City Church and I see what, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Nobody here has ever posted anything naughty on Facebook. But when we're thinking about what it looks like to bring peace beyond expected boundaries. We see it right here in this passage. And I want to just talk about two external ways that we bring peace beyond the expected boundaries. How do we love the people that are not like us? How do we extend, especially in a season, and there's people, I want you to do this with me right now. What do you plan on doing this? Like in your mind, think about on, on a spectrum, not like I hate this person because, you know, there's definitely political figures and people that you don't even know that I know that there's like this, uh, <laughs> they're awful. Um, it, but think, go, go across the whole spectrum. But there's people that maybe there's a wedge between you and them. And think of their, their just picture their face. Maybe, maybe you, you're, you're like, if there's a party and I find out that they're going to be there, you're really going to consider whether or not to go. Like, baby, that, that one we're not going to. Why? Well, that guy that's, you know what I'm talking about. He's there. You know, he, he came into work and he was funnier than I was. And we just got to get rid of him. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you've got people that you think about along the way. Just, just think about the people that are your rivals. 
And is it possible that God is wanting you to? Now, again, I don't want to overplay this and oversimplify this. Some of you have been hurt and abused by the, at the hands of someone else. And so there's a limitation in, in to, to what, obviously, what I'm going to say. But there's also healing that could take place in terms of forgiveness. doesn't mean that you, you have to go move back in a household with somebody and take more abuse. Don't get me wrong, and I don't want to oversimplify today. But there is a way to bring peace. There's a way to extend peace beyond the expected boundaries. And you see it right here in this passage. I love this because it's not my natural instinct. And I sometimes read the Beatitudes, and I read what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, and I think, well, he's just telling us all the things that we're not going to be able to do, and he's just going to have to do them for us. But that's an oversimplification of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as well. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you. So pray. Pray. Number one, if you want to know how you can bring peace beyond expected boundaries, it starts, and you're like, man, I like this one because I don't have to talk to them. Well, we're not, we ain't finished yet. Pray. Pray for them. Pray for your enemies. Not, you know, I, I know in my, in my mind when I first started thinking about this, I'm like, pray, Lord, that you smite her right there in her cubicle. Um, you know, not, it's not that. Like, I just, just completely, she needs to be humbled in every way, in every way that she's climbing the ladder. Please let it happen where she realizes her wrongness. Um, I mean, I, but, but pray, even, even thinking about when they ask Jesus how to pray, pray through the Lord's prayer. Pray that, hey, your kingdom come in her life or his life. That your will be done in, in her life. That in each day that they are blessed, that they have what they need, they have their daily bread. That they come to that place where they release the burdens and the bondage of, of maybe hate in their own heart. And they can forgive others as, as you've forgiven them. I mean, just to be simple in the way that you pray for somebody. To go to them. And I know some of us think, well, I don't, I don't really have any enemies, so... But in reality, we do. Of course, I know that there's, I mean, we, we navigated the, you know, 2020 and the political world with unscathed as a church. You know, I know none of us have splits along any aisles. I know that wouldn't be us, but we need to be able to teach other people outside these walls how to act, I'm sure. <laughs> Finally, somebody's laughing because, yes, I am the pastor here. But you, you have the ability to understand and know what's true in Scripture is that we don't wage war against flesh and blood. The enemy wants us to believe, the real enemy wants us to believe that, that human beings, people that were created in the image of God, are worthy of our hate, are worthy of us putting them on the outside, are, are a lost cause, are in the place of no hope, and it's not my job. Or we get to that place where we think, well, I've tried. I've, I've, I've made my, you know, my, my, my best effort. You know, if you look at Jesus, Jesus, in, the, in his worst moments, he prayed for his enemies. None of you have been wrong like Jesus was wrong. None of you had rivals like Jesus had rivals. And he didn't spit back while he was on the cross. He didn't say, I'm coming down off this cross right now. And I'm going to get you. He didn't. He humbly opened his arms. And this, I just think about this posture in general in life. 
just the idea of opening the arms. And he had to watch as people put a crown of thorns on, a, on his head. Blood flowed mingled down into the soil at Mount Calvary. And the same soldier that spit on him, that mocked him, that put a, a, a mocking purple robe on, on his shoulders, put a sign above his head that said, <laughs> here's the king of the Jews, became the first believer in Jesus, the Son of God, stood at the foot of the cross and said, surely this man is the Son of God. He gives us what it looks like to be a peacemaker. He says it also in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. The children of God. I love that, that that's mentioned here in verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Not that if you pray, you will become the children of your Father in heaven, because that's not the way image-bearing works. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's, what's Paul saying there in Ephesians 5? He's saying, you're children of God. As followers of Jesus, you are now image bearers. You are a new creation as Second Corinthian language, right? You, you've been raised, you were dead in your sins and trespasses and now you've been raised with Christ a new life and you've got a new heart. You've got something new in your soul. But we have to, as children, we have to know, we have to learn how to walk. As we remain in our, in our parents' house, in our father's house, we all of a sudden become image bearers. It shocks me and my kids don't want to admit it. They are a lot like me. They are. I mean, some of you have told me, you see Abe walking in here, you know, walking on his toes, kind of cruising in. And they're like, man, that is Derek Harmon right there, just cruising in. I mean, when my kids mock me, I, there's something in my heart that, that loves it a little bit because it's straight from dad, you know? I mean, my son, Jack, I mean, you would be shocked at some of the, the express, some of the things that he has said to me that you would think I would be offended by that. For me, I'm like, that's my boy. <laughs> um, but we're image bears. And, and they're not like that. They didn't practice that. They did, it wasn't something that they had to figure out. They're, they're not, that wasn't the way, that wasn't the road to becoming my kids. Like Abe didn't say, I got to figure out how to walk like dad or look like dad or do things like dad. You know, I, don't, I didn't have to figure out, you know, Ella didn't have to figure out how to be super intense and always stand in a position going, I'm not giving any ground. She didn't have to learn that from anywhere. She's my daughter. The stubbornness was built in. I mean, it is something that, that the Apostle Paul is trying to remind us that, you know, as children, and my children don't act like me in order to become my children. They, my children act like me because they are my children. And the Apostle Paul, I love it, he's just reminding us as the people of God, and I think we need this reminder just from the last few years that we are the children of God, and it's possible, it's, it's in you to begin to bring, to wheel that peace across the unexpected boundary line that even in our heart we're like I cannot believe I'm doing this because of some of the things that I feel in my heart but I'm going to extend myself to somebody that nobody would expect I'm going to have dinner with somebody that nobody would expect me to have dinner with I'm going to be around people that nobody would expect me to be around I'm going to pray for someone that 
that it's not natural for the rest of the world to pray for. But my Father in heaven, Jesus himself said, forgive them while they were crucifying him. He prayed, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's saying, redeem them. My hope is that they are saved. I mean, have you ever thought, I hope they're not in heaven? I mean, I have. I mean, I just, I've thought it in all honesty. It's not, it's the worst thing to think, but man, you know, when we get there, I wonder if they're going to be there. Kind of hope not. Jesus, arms spread out. I mean, still the wounds were open. And even for us with with scars and, and healing, have a hard time doing this. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. We're his children, and we we certainly could act more like his children. The other one, and this one gets a little bit more difficult, is presence. And you see it right here in verse 46. I love it. It sat there, and I just looked at it. I was like, it's what he's talking about. And it's frustrating, but it is so good. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? I love it. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet, and this word greet has to do with not a passing by, but it's, it's a being present with. It's a being, sitting with, being around. It's eye contact and beyond eye contact. It is relational. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? He's going, blow up the boundaries, people. Blow up the boundaries. He's saying, even the pagans do that. We're going to carry the gospel. We're going to carry peace. We're going to carry it beyond expected boundaries. And the reality is the world that we live in, there's a, there's a brand, we, you know, you read scripture and you talk about some of the divisions over the years during the civil rights movement. We've got a brand new dividing wall of hostility in our country. We have a massive need for the church to be, the, instead of being the reason for division, Let's separate ourselves from everybody else. No, you are supposed to be set apart for the glory of God and his kingdom. But if you look at the way that Jesus brought the kingdom, he didn't separate himself from the people that didn't do the things that he did. He hung out with the worst of the worst, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. He hung around with groups of people that were broken in many ways. He was always around the Pharisees and the sinners. And he extended his love to both of them. But guess where his heart actually went more? Towards the unrighteous, towards the broken, towards the ones that needed redemption, towards the ones that would completely, had completely train wrecked their lives and believed something completely different. To the communities that believed in other gods that were completely rebellious to the idea of moving towards God. I mean, think about Zacchaeus. Come down out of that tree. We're going to have dinner. Knowing that the Pharisees were going to say, that's an unexpected boundary, and that's why you're going to get crucified. They didn't say it then, but that's what they were thinking. We're called in this, in this new defining wall of hostility to bring peace as a church. It's got to start in here, people, and I'm just going to be raw and honest. It's got to start in here with our own people first. Where is it that we could be at peace with all people, our own people? Because there's, there's divisions here. There's people that are frustrated and aggravated in here. And then there's, there's, there's a myriad of people that are outside these walls. There's people in your, you can, there's, 
I mean, Thanksgiving might have been a little bit easier this year than last year. I mean, you know, take the election off the table. I mean, my last year was rough. I mean, everybody this year was like, we really are not going to talk about this this year at the table. And then there was probably the one guy that, you know, wore a MAGA hat or something and somebody got mad. But, I mean, we've got this opportunity right now in this culture. And for us, it was a, it's, it's been a brutal time. But what a, an amazing time for the church to be this big banner of peace that shines a big, bright, beautiful light on Jesus as we pray for those who persecute us, pray for those who think differently than, than we think, and then as we become people that are present with those that we wouldn't normally go around and be around. Most of the time, we do the opposite of greeting. Um, the opposite of greeting to me is we, we avoid people. You know, I'm not going to, like I said before, I'm not, we're not going to the thing if they're there. And I remember years ago, I was, uh, my, my kids played I-9 football. It's kind of a, a popular thing. Uh, Lucas Snyder, I think he's like the, one of the directors there. And you always see him out there reffing. But, um, and people in kids sports, I mean, you would think that there would be peace, you know. We could all just, at the end of the game, you know, that's why you send them across the field and good game, good game. And it's like the firmest handshake between the coaches that you've ever gotten in your life. I usually walk away going, gosh, I've got a little arthritis, man. I'm old, um, you know, especially because I beat everybody. Um, I'm kidding. But I do remember there was this one guy, we would play this one team and there was this one guy, always he was tall and he, he, his kid was good and, but he was, he was, and he was loud and just, I mean, he, I don't know what it was, but I'm like, every time I saw him just cruising over there, and he'd be yucking it up with his friends, and they beat us every time we played them. And it was just like, they, they were even just relaxed. They would just not even get up out of their, their you know, their Tommy Bahama chairs, you know, when, when things would happen. And we're all kind of on the edge of the sidelines going, run for the love of God, you know. And they're just like, you know, we're going to be, I mean, they would just crush us. And eventually... We, years later, we ended up with our kids on the same team. And I remember seeing him, and I was watching his family walk up, and I didn't even know that his son and my son had, had been good friends for, for years at, at Fletcher. Um, and I was just like, oh, gosh. And then I met him, and I'm not kidding you, within five minutes, I was like, I like this guy. <laughs> Isn't it funny? Presence. Like, there's this assumption that we have when we're not together when we're separated from somebody else and we look and we begin to, we see something in somebody and we, it, it just frustrates us. And then we think about that and then you see him again and there's all of this. I, I bet he's a jerk. I bet he drinks too much. I bet, you know, you just start thinking all these things that, you know, or we put it when you, without, in the absence of truth, there's, there's just our own brain and our, we're creative human beings. We can make up all kinds of stories and they're fun to talk about other people around a fire. You know, you just say, hey, remember that guy at the I-9 thing? He's terrible. Look at his hair. You know, we just, you do crazy stuff. And then I met him and we became friends. Like I liked him. He was great. And his, his son was amazing too. And we won all the time now. So it was fantastic. <laughs> but the, the, the closing of the gap of presence is, is a, is a God ordained thing. It's a God ordained thing. And there's something that, that he's saying here. He's saying outside those expected boundaries, we need to break those. Our, 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 ten, knack, our tendency is to, to go the other direction is to, to move in, a, in, a, in another place. And even in the last, think about the, I never even thought about that. They should have done, they, maybe they have sociological experiments of how this 
We were polarized going into the pandemic to somewhat. But because of isolation, we became more polarized because we didn't, we had selective community. You had to pick the people that you hung around with during the pandemic, right? Because of social distancing, I got to pick. These are the people that I want to hang around with, right? And these are the people that I pick. And because we did that, all of a sudden we had all of these clumps of people that were look like me, think like me, and that I would enjoy. I mean, if you're going to be in a pandemic and all of a sudden everything's shut down, you're going to pick the people you want to be around. And it created this isolation. When it comes to church, when it comes to the world we live in normally, when it comes to I-9 football games or school or anything else, you don't pick it. You just have to live life in community with one another because that's the way that God created the planet. But we got in this season where we got to selectively choose the groups of people that we would be around. And then all of a sudden you put an election in the middle of that and it was like this explosion of isolation. And there was no, people didn't have any context of seeing other people face to face to have that moment like, I like him. He's just like me. He's a, he's a human being, image bearer, made in the image of God, just like me. Sense of humor, just like me. We have kids the same age. I mean, it's, it, all of those things were lost. And we have to fight to get them back. And it starts here with each other, being able to look across the aisles at one another, face-to-face, being able to look at one another. I love the live stream. I do. I love that we, we can have it. But it's not helpful in this area. It is good to be here in this room. And this isn't like a call for church attendance. I think church is a place that you don't attend. You belong to a church. It's family. But there is something powerful about being together, about being together in your city group, about being somewhere where Maybe not everybody is the person that you would pick to be in there. In fact, I know that's true. But we have to fight, especially, we gotta learn, we gotta, we gotta, this is our practice ground. This is, the, this is the practice field that we get to actually do it out in life with the rest of the world. And imagine if we were the banners of bringing peace by greeting people and being present with people that we wouldn't normally be present with, that we, we normally wouldn't rub shoulders with that we normally wouldn't even think about reconciling with. We have this problem of pride and being right is more important. You're either on one side or the other of a particular issue. You know, I think about, you know, I was just reading a, a, an article about uh, Bill Clinton and um, George Herbert Walker Bush, the, you know, 41. And, you know, they're good friends. Like, and they had, if you grew up in that era, that was a brutal campaign. I mean, I mean, George H. called him Bozo about 5,000 times. Like, I mean, it was just, and he just called him old. He's like, your dog even knows you're old. I mean, I watched the clips. Like, it was just brutal. Opposite sides of the aisle. And then George W., in the middle of a crisis during the tsunami, what did he do? He called both of them and said, you two Bozos are going to get together and you're going to tour the world to raise money because there's a crisis, a world crisis. A tsunami has killed 165,000 people and there's another 180,000 people that we don't even know where they are. And these guys started flying around the world together for years and they became what they describe as not best friends, but family members. I mean, Barbara, Barbara Bush, she, she calls Bill Clinton her, her black sheep son. She's like, he, I love him. He strays, but I love him. 
in, uh, late in George Herbert Walker Bush's life, Bill Clinton gave an address and talked about, you should go look it up online. You talk about miracles. And listen to the way that he, he talks about him as though he, because he didn't have a father. He was, his fat father died three months before he was born, Bill Clinton. And then his real father was abusive, alcoholic. And he speaks of George Bush as, as if he was his dad. And I just thought, and, and you should hear them talking about how to set aside differences. And no matter what you think about politics, it is incredible. And all I could think about was Jesus. This is what's possible, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between human beings. It's so powerful. So how do we extend grace? Because I don't think it's innate in us. I mean, there's, I think we're still waging war against our sinful nature. But that's where we put our mind and our heart towards Jesus. Because when God himself had every right to separate himself from us, he did the unthinkable. When we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He crossed all the boundary lines. He left his throne. He left the place that he should be. God had every right to separate himself from the people that had rebelled against him. And he was holy and they were broken and sinful. And he says, no, I'm going to send myself in human flesh, not, not to a throne, not to the highest places on earth, not into the most elite places on earth, but I'm going, to, I'm going to put him right in the middle of the mess. I'm going to put him right in a manger. I'm going to put him right amongst shepherds. I'm going to put him right in a place that doesn't make any sense at all. And then he's going to walk in a manner of surrender. Like, I mean, a strategy that... You know, we, when we on planet Earth look for peace, we strive for peace. We institute for peace through governments. We fight for peace by going to war. But true peace is only found in Jesus. Jesus' strategy for peace was doing what none of us want to do, which is surrender, humility. His strategy for peace was to surrender himself for the world to raise the white flag. And it's so hard for us to do. We, we, we hold on to our rightness and we, we draw a line in the sand and we may be, there may be things that we're right about. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a Christian way, there's a Jesus following way to do things and there's a way that the world does things. But that wasn't meant for you to go to war with those people. That was the sign that we should be fighting for people because we're not fighting against flesh and blood. I need to fight for them. I, and it, it, when it's at all possible, I need to be at peace with them because I want to reveal to them the greatest thing that's ever happened. The suffering Savior that gave his life away for you and me. He surrendered his life so that we no longer have to fight for our rights because we have his righteousness. Because someone fought for me, I no longer have to fight. Because someone gave me his righteousness, I no longer have to prove that I'm right. Because my life is no longer my own but hidden in Christ, I can now give away my life. Because the dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed, I no longer have to be hostile. Because I'm forgiven, I can forgive. Because I'm loved, I can love. Because I'm a friend of God, I can befriend my enemies. Because he died for me, I can die to myself. 
And although I'm free from any and all, I make myself a servant to any and all outside of all boundaries that I might save some. Let's stand. God, we love you. God, set our mind and our heart ever before the cross that we would see it, that we would see your arms stretched out wide as a beautiful, beautiful representation of you crushing the real enemy and opening up our heart to the rest of the world just like you did.